from Trojans Wire, part of the College Wire Network at USA Today. This is the Trojans Wired Podcast. Here are your hosts, Matt Zemick and Ian Hest. latest episode of Trojans Wired podcast, which is an in-house production of the website Trojans Wire, part of the College Wire Network. This is your host, Matt Zemek, and it's obvious what we're going to be talking about this week, USC spring game. Also, a brief look ahead at the end to the NFL draft. Let's get right to it. So, you know, when we discussed uh, over the past few weeks, you know, what we were going to see with USC in this spring game and we are, we've been highlighting the main stories of, of spring practice, you know, for a number of weeks. You've heard, you know, the names, the faces, the players that have uh, been constantly flowing through the media bloodstream through our running conversation here at Trojans Wired. So in the spring game, you pretty much saw those faces rise to the forefront. And obviously we have to begin with Caleb Williams. He completed each of his first nine passes, five of five on his first drive. Uh, completed two touchdowns to Mario Williams. He looked the part, and that is the number one thing that USC fans wanted to see. It's also important that because this game was broadcast live by ESPN, uh, you know, outside recruits, people entering the transfer portal, they wanted to see and make sure that Caleb Williams was, in fact, the real deal. Box checked. Mission accomplished. Uh, so that was the number one storyline to, to emerge from this game. But elsewhere, at the various other position groups, you saw the prime players step up. You saw Mario Williams at wide receiver. You saw Travis Dye with a great start to this game, a number of seven, eight-yard carries right up the gut. You saw the first-team offensive line blowing open those holes for Travis Dye and protecting Kayla Williams really well. And then as the game continued, you saw the defensive playmakers rise to the surface. Now, Kalen Bullock's interception of a Williams pass did not count because there was a holding penalty, but he still showed great range covering the field, roving over toward the sideline to make that pick. So that was very impressive. You saw Romello Height, uh, the rush linebacker, uh, get a sack and make several other high impact plays. Shane Lee, the transfer from Alabama, was in on a number of plays. Was very solid. You know his leadership of this defense already well established. Uh, his presence on this roster already unquestioned. So he has established himself. Tuli Tui Pelotu on the defensive line made some fierce tackles. He was hitting very hard. Uh, obviously made his presence felt. Two of his tackles were for losses, so he was making high-impact plays in the offensive backfield. Uh, just across the various groups, the names that you know, the names that you recognize as the USC football fan, they played well. And the question coming out of the spring game is the lack of depth, and it showed most conspicuously on the offensive line. When the second string offensive line was rotated into the game that's when you saw more sacks now of course the, the real uh question and point of intrigue is how much was the defense's improvement in the second half a product of going against more of the second stringers versus first stringers 
And it was a mixture, of course. And I think that the defense definitely made some improvements and adjustments. So it wasn't just rotating in bodies. Uh, the defense really did step up after Caleb Williams uh, thrived on the first few drives of the game. Uh, but nevertheless, that second string offensive line with very few available bodies, you know, Bobby Haskins, the transfer from Virginia, not yet healthy, wasn't uh, a participant in spring practice. He'll be uh, available in August, but you didn't see him in the spring. So just the shortage of bodies on the offensive line, that is one of the, the foremost uh, points of concern uh, heading out of the spring game. Uh, but, you know, if you're looking for an overview uh, as you uh, process this spring game, let me just tell you, the recruiting commitments, the responses from recruits, the responses from the transfer portal, they're all flooding in. Uh, 48 hours after the spring game as we record this show uh, midday on Monday. Uh, we've already seen USC grab uh, a safety from Ohio State, Bryson Shaw. Uh, a few other recruits had uh, either had visits this weekend or scheduled official visits uh, for mid-June. And we also have a uh, 2023 pass rusher uh, announced over the weekend after the spring game that USC and Michigan are his final two schools. So right after the spring game, instant recruiting momentum on several fronts in several different realms from several different players. If you're wondering if this game is a success, we're already seeing very tangible evidence. So a good first start for Lincoln Riley coaching his first game in the Los Angeles Coliseum as the leader of this restoration project at USC. Ian Hest, any uh, foremost observations you bring uh, from this game on Saturday? I feel like I was nodding my head throughout everything that you just said. I mean, the, that that was a great summation of the game. Um, but I, I do want to break it down a little. Um, but I, and, and I do want to start with Caleb Williams. I, I thought that the comfortability that he had was was – like apparent from the first snap that he just understands this offense, that there isn't going to be that feeling out period that you sometimes have with a new quarterback and stuff like that. I, I wanted to ask you about your feeling on that. If you think that this is just like Oklahoma to Oklahoma to Los Angeles, or if you feel like this is just a coach and a quarterback that have a comfortability about them, have a relationship that you could feel good about. That that looked like old school USC football. Like that that looked like Matt Liner, you know, like all of that that time period. But well, you know, when you when you look at Matt Liner and, and and what he did at USC in his career, it does have to be said that he had an elite running game uh supporting him with Lendale White. And Reggie Bush and hey, Travis Dye and Austin Jones, the running backs, they both looked very good. But, you know, it's it's still a pretty high bar to clear when you talk about all the great players on those 2004 and 2005 teams. Um, but what does come through uh, in a comparison between Matt Lyon and Caleb Williams, and they had very different playing styles, but very much at ease. Right. I, I mean, wasn't, that, I that's wasn't what you're like a like to like. Yes. I was just saying like, that, there was the comfortability field. Of course, very much at ease. Like that is a strong similarity between the two. Their pocket presence 
was phenomenal. And you saw the ease with which Caleb Williams moved in and through and outside the pocket. You know, he he's he's moving to his left. He's moving to his right. He's looking down the field. You know, he's not he's not glancing over his shoulder. He is just moving. He's always looking down the field. He's scanning his reads. He's scanning his progressions. But he's moving forward and he's moving sideways and it doesn't seem forced. It doesn't seem hesitant. Like there was just a natural understanding of how and when to move in the pocket. And of course, the the best play that Caleb Williams made in the spring game was, you know, he actually got a a pass rush in his face. Now, of course, you're, you're not allowed to hit the quarterbacks. It was considered a sack if you were able to touch the quarterback before he released the ball. But nevertheless, Caleb Williams got a pass rush right in his face, coming up the middle a little bit to his right, but fundamentally up the middle, just right in his face. He makes a throw off his back foot, puts it right in the bucket to Terrell Bynum, hits Bynum in stride in in a clearing near the right sideline. You know, he made something very, very hard look very, very easy and that just reinforces what you're saying, that there's just a natural feel. And, and of course, it's duly noted, you said correctly, that you know Caleb Williams doesn't need to be taught a new system. USC does not have a quarterback who needs to learn Lincoln Riley's system from scratch. He already has a working body of knowledge that he is now trying to increase and build upon. That's obviously a big advantage. But beyond that, just Caleb Williams has that feel for the game and, and it might seem like a cliche, but you know, you know it when you see it, right? You know, when you're seeing a player, exactly. you just have right. an instinctive yeah. understanding of how to play the game. I mean, Patrick Mahomes is the, is the ultimate example in professional football, just natural feel. He does things that no coach ever could have told him. Like Mike Leach did not teach Patrick Mahomes how to, throw, you know, the sidearm angle pass, uh, you know, when he's flushed out of the pocket and he's going to the right side of the field, no one taught him how to do that. He just has that natural ability and, and sees the geometry and the angles of the field in a way that, you know, gives him that green light to say, Hey, let me throw this ball at a different angle. I have the skill set and the athleticism to pull it off, but that's what this situation needs. And you remind me, something that's in about a play that Caleb Williams made last year at Oklahoma. I don't know if you remember this. I don't know if you were watching. It was the game uh, in which Oklahoma was at Kansas. It was interesting. Interestingly, I just called it. I just said it out loud. (laughs) I know exactly where you're talking. Okay. Yes. The steal, the steal carry. He stole the ball. He rips the ball from an Oklahoma running back on fourth down. He just takes the ball from his teammates' hands as he was about to be stopped short on fourth down. He just takes the ball away. Totally legal move. But, you know, like no one else does that. Like you you would see, you know, we, we've seen through the years of watching football, you know, Patrick Mahomes has done things no one else has ever done. A few decades ago, it was Brett Favre with his wild improvisational passes. Like only he would do that, you know, in his time uh, in the NFL. And Caleb Williams is another incarnation of that, that, that snatch fumble, that fumble carry uh, for Oklahoma against Kansas last year, another uh, great example of that. So he does things no one else does, but more than that, he, he, it seems to come 
very naturally to him. And that really is the difference between a player who is trying to force things and a player who is just uniquely creative in seeing the sport at, at a level few others do. So that's just an immensely exciting thing for USC fans to contemplate. And that back foot throw down the sidelines to Terrell Bynum was that signature play from Saturday. So I wanted I wanted to dive deeper into this. I, I really want to get into Travis Dye because he shocked me. He, he just jumped off the page. I, I wasn't ready for how good he was um, and, and was really excited about that. And I know that a lot of what we talked about before the spring game was in the trenches, was the offensive line, was it was the defensive line to a certain extent, too. Right. But. I, I guess I wonder when you make the Patrick Mahomes comparison, when you do like, this is in student body, right? This is like different looking. And it, it was very uh, like motions and excitement. It looked like a Lincoln Riley offense. It didn't look like a traditional sit back and throw offense. Do you like that? Will USC fans, appreciate that difference and and where where are your comfortabilities with the the like variations that they were doing well you know so with matt leinard in, in the the p carroll dynastic period you, you had a lot of eye formation you had a fullback brandon hancock uh you know you had a, you had other uh fullbacks from that era stanley havili for example um but, uh, you know, so you're not going to have a lot of eye formation here. Um, but <laughs> what, what USC fans are going to appreciate is simply competence, <laughs> you know, because we've not seen a lot of competence the past few years. You'll note that there were very few penalties. There were no turnovers. Again, that was the one interception that was wiped out by one of the few penalties of the day. You, this was not a sloppy game. Uh, this was not an ugly game. You, know, you saw you saw really good playmaking on both sides, offense and defense. Uh, you know, in terms of, in terms of Travis Dye, you know, his burst up the middle, that, that just hit you right off the bat that he, he exploded up the middle. Obviously the, the first team offensive line did a good job of opening the holes, but Dye was explosive. One of the things that people might be wondering about is that you didn't see a uh, a lot of screen or dump off passes in the flats. And that's something that Lincoln Riley has done a lot of uh, at Oklahoma, you know, getting running backs, the ball as pass catchers out of the backfield in open space. Part of why Lincoln Riley did that last year at Oklahoma. Uh, and we've discussed this in previous weeks is that he didn't have a deep running back room. You know, Kennedy Brooks and Eric Gray were the only two, uh, every down running backs he had. So he couldn't run them between the tackles very much. He had to get them the ball as pass catchers out of the backfield a lot more. But, uh, you know, in terms of this game, why did, why did you not see a lot of, uh, you know, flat passes uh, and, and, and check downs? Well, one of the things that Lincoln Riley said leading up to this game, this is very important. He said that, you know, the spring game, and especially with ESPN covering it, as opposed to Pac-12 Network, there were a lot of eyes on this game. You know that other coaches in and around the Pac-12 were scouting this game, looking for tells, looking for revelations about you know how uh, Lincoln Riley's offense operates. You know that there was a lot of scouting being done, 
by other teams in the conference. So Lincoln Riley said before the game that we're not going to reveal too much. You know, we're going to try to make this a little more vanilla. Uh, and so that was one of the ways in which his offense was, you know, simplified. It was the pass. The passes went to wide receivers. You know, there were five different wide receivers who caught Williams five different uh, completed passes on the first drive. Uh, so you didn't see passes going to running backs, but you're going to see that in September. But Lincoln Riley, I think very purposefully, didn't want to do that uh, in this game. He didn't want to showcase that part of, of his play calling package, that part of his offensive repertoire. So I think in terms of what USC fans are really happy about, you just you just didn't see sloppiness. You saw precision from the offense and on defense, you did see physicality, especially Tui Pelotu in particular. You saw him make some ferocious tackles, some really big sticks. You heard the pods papping, pods papping. You heard the pads popping, excuse <laughs> me, in the uh, Los Angeles Coliseum. So, you know, the, the mixture of physicality and cleanness on the different sides of the ball, that just speaks to a level of competence that shows that, actual coaching is going on which you and, didn't have under clay helton so the you know we get into you know the, the stylistic uh framing of a usc offense of course the air raid was a sore spot because many fans you know think that you know the, the 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 air raid is a gimmick and usc doesn't need to resort to gimmicks well you know this as you said this isn't going to be john robinson's student body right but because the offense is so well coached, because it's going to be so precise, uh, because players are going to be in the right spots, because the execution uh, is going to be polished. That's the main thing. And it, and it just brings up the larger point that whether it's the air raid, whether it's the run and shoot, whether it's the wishbone, people just want competence. And this is not to defend the air raid. It's just to point out the, the bigger reality that whatever the offense is, whatever the scheme is, one, it needs to fit your personnel, but two, and much more importantly, just needs to be coached right because USC is going to get athletes under any circumstance. You just need the coaching to pull it all together. You can see, and you could see from this spring game, how well coached this team is, and that's just going to add so much value. And, 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 it, and it bears repeating, Ian, we're, obviously we're going to continue to say it when we get into August camp and then into September. But, you know, the caliber of play in the Pac-12 was so bad last year, or at least so mediocre uh, among so many teams at so many position groups, especially quarterback, that even though USC is not going to have a fully stocked roster, even though there's going to be uh, concerns about depth, especially on both uh, the offensive and defensive lines, and those concerns should not be minimized by any stretch. Like that is a very significant limitation that USC is going to face in its bid for the Pac-12 title and bigger prizes. We, we acknowledge that. But the caliber of play in the Pac-12 was so mediocre last year that when you bring in a coach and a staff of this caliber and you get you immediately get that sharp rise in player development, which we got a taste of in this spring game, that's, that's why and that's how USC can make up the gap quickly in one year, going from four and eight to contending for a Pac-12 title. Many in the conference are skeptical of that. And I know that Utah has a very good team. Utah is very likely to win 10 or 11 games. 
And uh, probably when we get to kickoff of that game in Salt Lake City uh, in mid-October, yeah, Utah's probably going to be favored. Not going to be by much, but Utah's probably going to be favored. Probably like a field goal favorite. Um, so, like, that's a formidable obstacle for the Trojans. But the idea that USC is going to be an 8-4 and four team, you're seeing a lot of 8-4 and four predictions from a number of analysts. They, they, they really think that this year is going to be a hard slog. I'm not seeing that because I think that the co- the quality in coaching, seeing that that one dynamic increase and improve so exponentially, that is going to lift USC so much uh, in one year that I think a quicker restoration not only is more than doable, but with this schedule that USC has, I, I'd say it's more likely than not. So the quality of coaching just I agree. Really I agree thrown through in this spring game. And so you can talk about air raid, run and shoot, pro style, spread offense. It's less about the style. It's more about the coaching. USC has the coaching. And I think that was very clear for Saturday. See, and I would like, I, I agree with a lot of what you said, but I, I would disagree with you on like a pure air raid style. It's more of a hybrid for me. It's not a Mike Leach. It's not a Chip Kelly. It, it was there, there, there was nuance to it, which, which I like. You didn't see a lot of like the the quick bubble screens that that you're just trying to get it out into the flat as quickly as possible, um, like like that. And and I think that that speaks to the confidence that they have in that offensive line, you know. And and I, I wanted to talk to you about Travis Dye because I I think that the offensive line being able to establish themselves and establish the run and being able to have, you know, sort of that, that quickness about them, that, that, that versatility, that um, uh, I'm losing the word, but like that, that dexterity that, you know, to, to be able to move uh, was very appreciative from a concerning point to start the year, right? Like when we were having this conversation a month, two months ago, that they weren't going to be able to do that. Well, that didn't prove to be true. They proved that they're able to do that. And I was very excited about that. Uh, The flip end to that, I would say, is where my concern was at like the second level, at the linebacker level. Um, I didn't see a lot of ability to close out quickness in that ability to come forward um and, and where there is uh, I was curious as to your thoughts about that yeah in terms of the linebackers I, yeah certainly early on in the in the on those first drives in the first half of the game you know it, the offense was dominant um but but as the game wore on um you know I I felt that the, the hitting uh, from the linebackers uh, improved and the other thing is you didn't really see a large number of missed tackles. You saw them, especially early on in the game. The offense was definitely a step ahead of the defense. But as the game continued, you know, you, you saw fewer missed tackles. And uh, oh, I, I think Matt, that's... So I'm, not, I'm not talking about missed tackles. I'm talking about positioning. Well, yes. But, but, when, but I would say that when guys were in position to make the play, they made a play. But, of course... Were they always in position? Definitely not. And that, that is definitely that is definitely something that's going to have to be addressed. It is worth noting, and I know this isn't a linebacker, but the, the uh, addition of an Ohio State safety transfer, Bryson Shaw, 
he was third. On, this this happened on Sunday, so the day after the spring game, uh, he was third on Ohio State's defense last season in tackles uh, with fifty nine. So like there, that's an that's an acknowledgement that that USC needs guys who can close uh, and and make tackles in open space. And, and and I think you know what you've said, Ian. It fleshes out that point that though guys made tackles when in position to make plays. The problem is they weren't in position nearly as consistently uh, as they needed to be, especially in the first half of that game. And so that points to a speed deficit. Uh, I mean, I think that, you know, the, the getting used to the flow of the game was part of it, but yes, the speed is not where USC and that coaching staff want it to be. Alex Grinch has talked a lot about the need for having, you know, elite level speed, uh, in his defense at USC. My other thing was, you know, and in spring games, you're, you're never really going to see, but like, would you consider the trenches like an effective assessment of where each side of the ball is at or, or is that jury still out? Oh, I think the jury's definitely still out. You know, on the offensive side, it's more about just getting depth behind the first string. I think the first string offensive line looks like a pretty good group. I mean, they fired off the ball, plowing open holes for Travis Dye on the first few drives, and they kept Caleb Williams relatively clean. I mean, I mean, now Williams has great pocket presence, as we alluded to, but he did generally have a lot of time to throw, you know, it, the, the game came to him very easily, very naturally. So he wasn't under a whole lot of fire. I think that first string offensive line is pretty good, but then it's just getting quality bodies uh, behind that first string to boost numbers. I think uh, the defensive line, I've said it before. I'm going to say it again. I don't, I don't think my opinion is going to change when we get to August. I think it's going to remain that the defensive line is the number one, uh, concern in terms of any position group. And, and it's for an obvious reason that if the defensive line can't stop the run, you know, we saw Oregon state, Utah, Stanford, UCLA, we saw all of them just dump truck USC's defensive front in the Coliseum last year. Uh, if USC's defensive line can't stop the run, what does that mean? Not only points for the opposition, but even more centrally, Caleb Williams is, is on the sidelines watching the game an opponent can get 35 37 maybe even 40 minutes of possession and usc simply cannot win that way period caleb williams needs to be on the field for at least half the game uh the time of possession needs to be competitive usc doesn't necessarily need to win it but you know like 32 28 that's fine but it can't be 35 25 37 23 3921 USC is going to lose uh, especially against a team like Oregon State in Corvallis if the time of possession uh is is in that vicinity so that gets to the defensive line needing to be able to be serviceable in its run defense no one's expecting it to be especially good this season but just be decent you know win, win enough of the snaps that you're supposed to win uh, on the down and distance situations where you really ought to be able to make a play. Uh, don't get gashed repeatedly. You know, just can contain damage and create enough situations where the opponent has to throw on second and especially 
third down. So uh, you, the defensive line going up against the first team offensive line, you know, that was a that was a battle that the, the first team offensive line mostly won. Uh, and, and part of that is the offensive line being good, but also, you know, it just points to the defensive line not having quite enough standout players just yet. It, it was very interesting, Ian. You might have caught this after the spring game ended. But uh, Leonard Williams, the uh, USC NFL star, now with the New York Giants, he said, you know, I like the way that number zero kid looked. Uh, but, of course, he didn't have the name in mind. He didn't know number zero was Corey Foreman. So, like, that it was praise, but it was yeah. praise in a way that was still <laughs> eye grabbing because, you know, that's how obscure and anonymous Corey Foreman was on the field last season that he didn't make much of an impact. And, you know, we would generally assign that less to anything Corey Foreman did or didn't do. It's a lot more about the very poor level of coaching he got first in the off season, you know, last year's spring ball. Uh, and then on into August camp from Clay Helton. Then Helton gets fired in uh, early September. Uh, and then, you know, uh, Todd Orlando, the defensive coordinator throughout the 2021 season. Corey Foreman did not get a good level of coaching. So it's noticeable not only that Leonard Williams praised Corey Foreman uh, from Saturday, but that he didn't know his name. Uh, and it just speaks to how, you know, Foreman is behind schedule in his development improving but still behind schedule and that that just shows that usc is operating at a deficit on the defensive line that players are not where they should be in their evolutionary arcs and and to me if you were to if you were to say matt you know does usc need defensive linemen or offensive linemen more in the transfer portal well my first answer would be yes yes it it just needs more linemen period wherever it can find them but but if but if you really did sit, force me to say, Matt, you got to pick one side. It would be defense. That's the the defensive line needs bodies more than the offensive line does because again, uh, Caleb Williams can function behind the first team offensive line, and you obviously hope that injuries don't hit there. You will need depth behind that first line uh, if injuries do hit. But if you don't have depth on the defensive line, you're just asking for the Oregon states of the world. Uh, to slap 300 rushing yards and 40 minutes of time of possession on you. And if USC loses that Oregon State game uh, in late September, then the Trojans would basically have to run the table to have any shot of winning both their division and the conference. They would have to win in Salt Lake City against Utah. So to me, defensive line is the number one concern as a position group heading out of the spring game. Well, since we're talking legacy, before we close spring football talk uh, and spring game talk, can can we talk about Brendan Rice? I, I, that was nice. It, I, I don't know if that's going to be a story. Uh, this isn't Mississippi Valley State, but it, it was really uh, heartwarming to to see, you know, him come into USC and, and everything that goes along with it. What was your feeling on it? What are your expectations for him this year? Well, you know, Brendan Rice had a relatively quiet spring game because, you know, Mario Williams caught the touchdown passes and showed a very natural level of chemistry with Caleb Williams. Terrell Bynum was the receiver uh, who impressed me, I think, the most because he's, you know, he's the transfer from the University of Washington. And he made the catch on uh, Caleb Williams' back foot throw. Uh, he, made, he, he made some people miss. 
in the open field. He made some of the especially flashy plays. So compared to those two receivers, uh, Brennan Rice had a more quiet game. Uh, and so, you know, not not a, a, a huge splash in this game, but you did see him with Jerry Rice after the game. And Rice, you know, was a beaming, very proud Papa. So like that right there tells me, you know, that that Jerry Rice is noticing the effort. He's noticing. Yeah, maybe that's uh, like my nostalgia. I just I, I thought it was like heartwarming to see them to get like that was just really nice. Well, it, it was really nice. But like, you know, that it was a it was a vibrant uh interaction between father and son and so you know there we we see the universal experience of fathers and sons bonding after a game you know in which the son uh just finished playing and you know it's not the same kind of emotion after every game you know there's going to be an awareness of how well the son played or at least how hard the son played and it's going to elicit a different emotional reaction. Even if we're just talking about a spring game, you know, a scrimmage, I know par- parents react differently. Like, I think we've all seen it. We've all been around sports enough, you know, from Little League and, and YMCA, you know, youth basketball, or going up to college, going up to the pros. Um, we've all been, we've all seen enough interactions between parents and their children playing sports uh, in the public eye to know, you know, what was a performance where, you know, the parent is consoling uh, the, the the son where the parent is proud of the son. And th- this this was pride. This this was, you know, real uh, appreciation for, for what just happened. So like this in terms of the stats, in terms of the highlight real plays, this was not Brendan Rice's game for that. That doesn't mean he didn't perform well, however, like Jerry Rice seemed to be very impressed by what happened and and that that was really the 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 part of the inner his interaction with Brendan Rice on the field after the game in the Coliseum which which stood out to me the most yeah no I just I really enjoyed it I don't know it felt good it it felt like genuine it felt like a father really caring about absolutely and and to me that was just a, a beautiful moment uh, the NFL draft is coming up this week. Uh, and, uh, you know, there, obviously USC is going to have some guys. Let, let's just start there. What, what are what first initial thoughts, I guess, Matt, for sure. what I think USC is going to deal with in the draft? Yeah, so, I mean, the, the first really big thought about this NFL draft is it's the last Clay Helton draft class. I mean, I think that's... I don't think USC fans are especially I, excited. I agree with that. I think that's a great point. That's a, I don't think that's a really important point. I mean, yeah, just in terms of framing the significance of this draft, it really is more about the end of something rather than the beginning of something. And I think USC fans aren't going to put too much emotional weight into this draft precisely because like they're, they're already looking ahead to the 2023 draft. Like for USC fans, you know, it's been so painful to see the relatively small amount of representation in the NFL draft uh, since Pete Carroll left. And the area where uh, Carroll and, and Helton differentiate themselves the most in the NFL draft is this, it's not the first round, it's the second round. You know, because you've seen Elijah Vera Tucker to the Jets, 
first-round pick, offensive lineman. You've seen Austin Jackson, first-round pick, Miami Dolphins, offensive tackle. You know, the, the, the getting a, a first-round pick, that hasn't been the problem. It's just that the, the second and third rounds, day two, has become very barren for USC. You know, last year, Amon Ross St. Brown and Jay Tufele, they weren't taken until day three, uh, you know, at, outside the top 100. Now, Amon Ross St. Brown has proven to be a steal for the Detroit Lions at that relatively low draft position. But nevertheless, the fact that he was picked that late, it pointed to what draft scouts and analysts pretty reasonably concluded was, you know, a lack of high-end player development at USC under Clay Helton. So USC fans are just aware of how finally, you know, this is going to be the last draft in which we hear all those stories about how USC's NFL draft presence has been dramatically reduced since Pete Carroll. Next year, uh, the hope is that you're going to see a much more robust draft presence. You're going to see second-round picks, you know, a lot more second-round picks. You're going to see a lot more third-round picks. You know, many more players taken in the top 100 because of the respect uh, of how Lincoln Riley and also Alex Grinch develop NFL caliber talent, given what they've done at Oklahoma, given what Alex Grinch did at Ohio State before coming to Oklahoma with Riley. Um, so so that's that's the big story. It's the last time we have to hear about the Clay Helton legacy or lack thereof at USC. So. As we transition to the actual players themselves, my sense is that Drake London's going to go at number eight to the Atlanta Falcons. And why am I, why am I so clear? That was going to be my question to you. That <laughs> yeah, like, so, do you think Drake London can go top ten? Yeah, so I think he's going eight to the Falcons. And people might say, why is that? Well, let's remember Calvin Ridley got suspended for the season because he gambled on NFL games. You know, so. That leaves a big gaping hole for the Falcons and Marcus Mariota, their current quarterback, uh, you know, with Matt Ryan now on the Colts, um, the, the, the Falcons have to get a prime wide receiver. So Drake London is very likely to be the first receiver off the board. He's almost certainly going to be sitting there at number eight. So the Atlanta Falcons, it just, it just fits. It fits on so many levels not just because Drake Lennon's a great player, but because the Falcons don't have Calvin Ridley, you know, and, they, and of course they traded away Julio Jones. So, you know, you have Kyle Pitts there, of course, but you need another guy on the other half of the field. So I, I feel very confident that it's going to be Drake Lennon to the Falcons uh, at number eight. And then after that, and this is where you get into the Clay Helton uh, problem. You just have a very thin draft board over the next three rounds, over the next 100 to 125 picks. Really? You Drake think Jackson, so? Isaac Taylor Scott? Isaac Taylor Stewart's been mocked as a fifth rounder, as a day three guy. I, um, I, I would rate him higher. Wow. I'm, well, I'm he, you know, he, that. And that could be another situation where you're getting a steal. Um, and, and a little bit more on him in a bit. But in terms of like where most mock drafts are, like Drake Jackson is the only guy, only guy after Drake London who's likely to be picked in uh, the top 100 and, and, and uh, in, in the first two days uh, of the draft. And most mocks generally have them mid to late second round at this point. And so for Drake Jackson, it's less about whether you go 55, 65, or 70. It's more about uh, the right fit. Um, 
I think the Kansas City Chiefs would be a great landing spot for Drake Jackson. I think the Green Bay Packers would be a great landing spot uh, for Drake Jackson. So it's less about the number, uh, more about the team fit. And, and so we'll see what happens with Drake Jackson. But now let's re- let's revisit Isaac Taylor's story. Really good conversation point because, and you might remember this, but, but, even, but if not, I'm going to remind you, Ian, and our listeners here on Trojans Wired, that uh, Kalanoa Hufanga dropped quite a lot on the draft board uh, last year. And a lot of people were skeptical of his speed. People thought he was too slow uh, to be a top-tier NFL draft prospect. But he impressed for the San Francisco 49ers. Uh, Kyle Shanahan very much uh, liked him, uh, approved of, of how he played, how he conducted himself. And it's worth noting that Hufanga scored the 49ers' only touchdown in their divisional playoff win over the Green Bay Packers. It was was Hufanga who recovered the block punt, was right there to scoop it and score uh, on special teams uh, to to, to tie that game as the 49ers uh, uh, upset Aaron Rodgers and the Packers. So, you know, Hufanga was, uh, I, I forget the exact number, I think it was 180. Um, but, you know, he came fairly late in the draft, but the worries about him proved to be unfounded. He was a very solid, uh, productive role player for a very good team, a team that made the NFC championship game. So, Ian, I'm inclined to agree that Isaac Taylor Stewart, uh, maybe also Chris Steele are being undervalued a bit, but there is that Clay Helton baggage. Like, I think that's why they're lagging in a lot of mock drafts, that they're being projected lower than they perhaps should be or could be. Uh, but it is that Clay Helton baggage. But the Talanoa Hufanga story is instructive because it shows that even if you do drop on the big board, that there is a nat- level of natural talent and quality which can enable a USC player from the secondary uh, to rise above a relatively low projected draft status and become a solid NFL player. I mean, you know, being picked around 180, it's not uh, a final verdict on your career. It's just a projection. Uh, Ufanga outperformed his projection. Amon Ross St. Brown outperformed his draft projection. So you see num- numerous examples of players not being highly regarded because of the baggage associated with Clay Helton, but that's not going to be an impediment in terms of being able to stick on an NFL roster. Yeah, I, I think I called him Scott, not Stewart. That, that was a, a misstep on my part, so I apologize to him. And, and not Stuart Scott either. Yeah, exactly. Um, but I, I just see him as like such a big physical corner that, that fits the NFL type that you would want that and, and coach it up. It, like he has all of the physical tools and, and all you have to do is sort of, you know, hone them. If you have good ho- coaching that, that he didn't have with Clay Helton, that you would be, that he didn't have with Todd Orlando, that you would be able to make that into a, a, a you know, a huge asset. If you could get him in, in the fourth, fifth, if you could get him day three, I would I would go after him in day two. So that that's just why I was surprised that you would say that. 
Well, and, and, and this is part of the homework that NFL teams have to do, right? You have to ask, well, you know, was the level of coaching holding him back? Like, is there, is there this diamond in the rough quality to the player himself? Like, can the player transcend uh, the, the caliber of coaching that he received, you know, in a situation where the coaching wasn't good? That, that's the kind of sleuthing that NFL teams uh, need to do. And like the, the, the opposite comparison is that when a, when a guy puts up great stats, but he's on a team where he had everything else uh, lined up for him, you know, he had all the other tools needed to succeed. Well, and then he goes to a bad NFL team where he doesn't have those other pieces. I mean, think, think of Trevor Lawrence as an example. Now I'm not saying that Lawrence is going to be a bust, but his rookie season definitely showed that you can have this luminously talented player, which Lawrence of course is, you know, we, we saw his skills at Clemson. He's prodigiously skilled. Uh, he can do a lot of amazing things in terms of speed, running ability, you know, making those frozen rope throws across the field. Like there's obviously a, a formidable skill set, but he had so many other pieces lined up for him at Clemson. He goes to the Jaguars where they don't have those pieces. He goes to a dysfunctional coaching situation and, it, it, you know, nothing went right for him. So it, that it, you know that's the kind of the other side of the coin when you're looking at these USC secondary guys being projected in the fifth and sixth round and, and in some cases not being mock drafted at all. They're going to be an uh, unrestricted uh, free agent uh, or an undrafted free agent, I should say. Um, you know, just teams need to look into uh, how much the coaching held them back and how much the actual physical package might still provide limitations. I would agree with you, Ian, in saying that, uh, you know, Isaac Taylor Stewart, physically, he measures up. Like, he he looks the part of an NFL-caliber player. The worries about the coaching, I think, are why he's not mock-drafted a lot higher on, on, on big boards. The last elephant in the room is Keaton Slovis. Is he an NFL quarterback? Well, I mean, he... He, he gets another year at uh, the University of Pittsburgh uh, to, to, to find out, uh, you know, just but how much he can do. Is, is this a thing that we're even considering anymore? Oh, sure. I mean, because, you know, you look at, you look at the, the guy he's replacing at Pittsburgh, Kenny Pickett. Uh, Kenny Pickett kind of came out of nowhere uh, to be, you know, a significant uh, NFL draft prospect, or at least if he didn't come out of nowhere, he certainly uh, uh, overshot expectations. He exceeded expectations this past season, leading Pitt to an ACC championship. And, barely, and uh, well, he didn't play in, in the Peach Bowl, but you know, being able to take uh, Pittsburgh to a New Year's Six Bowl game, that was a lot more than what most people were expecting. So is Keaton Slovis able to uh, deliver uh, a breakout season of his own at Pitt. And, and let's remind ourselves with uh, Keaton Slovis going to Pitt, um, he's not the first USC quarterback to transfer to Pitt. Max Brown, the guy people might remember, is the guy who was unseated by Sam Darnold early in the 2016 season. You know, it was Max Brown who got the start from Clay Helton against Alabama. Uh, Sam Darnold then replaced him a few weeks into the 2016 season and that Friday night game at Utah. Uh, so, you know, so, so Keaton Slow is transferring to Pitt, not the first USC quarterback uh, to go to the Steel City. But there is a precedent with Kenny Pickett that, you know, a player can really have a, a surprising breakout year that people aren't expecting 
uh, that and that in the right circumstances, the pieces might all fit. You know, Pitt's not going to run the air rate. It's going to run a, a, a comparatively more conventional offense. And so, you know, with Pittsburgh coming off that ACC championship, maybe that's just the, the formula. Maybe that's the, the change of scenery uh, that Keaton Slovis needed. Uh, but uh, certainly his evolution at USC went in the wrong direction. You know, the, the 2019 season was very encouraging. 2020 was kind of a washout, partly because it was the shortened pandemic season, you know, only six games, but also because there were re real shoulder problems that he had during the year. But this past season, uh, this was genuine regression uh, by any real realistic measurement. Um so, you know, if you were a betting person, would you would you expect Keaton Slovis to be uh, a top tier quarterback in next year's draft class? Probably not. Uh, but but being in a, in a new place and getting a fresh start um, where he's not going to face quite as much uh, scrutiny as he did at USC, maybe that creates a reset button. Maybe that enables him. Uh, to start fresh and, uh, and and build back his career. So it's going to be interesting to see, but, yeah. I, but certainly the skepticism is very much warranted it, with it, Keaton Slovis. It kind of brings the conversation full circle back to Caleb Williams and what we were talking about to start is that, like, I always thought with Slovis, like, what if, what if you could make that throw? Then all of a sudden all right, we got something here. And with Caleb Williams, I'm like, all right, how do we like just sort of control this skill into like existential threats that we could give other teams? It, it was, it was always what if with him. It was. And of course, you know, look, watching him in 2019, you know, my conscious thought was, well, hey, like there's a lot of potential here, but you know that's not quite the same as, oh, this guy's the real deal, which is which is what you 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 react and and how you react when you watch Caleb Williams play. Uh, there's just such a, a natural instinctual quality to Caleb Williams and how he plays football, and that wasn't quite ever there with Keaton Slovis. When, when he played well in 2019, it was more of all right, you, you can see the makings, you can see the material of, of a guy who can develop into a great quarterback. Well, with Caleb Williams, you can you can see, well, this is a great this is a great quarterback. He just needs, you know, to more more time to learn and fully grow into his role. Like Caleb Williams, he wasn't necessarily already there, but he was already on his way. He was already several places down the track in terms of his development. Whereas Caleb Williams, with, with Keaton Slovis, it was more of, okay, he's at this starting point and there's some talent and there's some potential, but there's still uh, quite a ways for him to go. There was not that gap with Caleb Williams in terms of the gap from potential to reality. That was a much smaller window. It was much more of Caleb Williams had already advanced these several steps already knew how to process a number of plays. And, and, and that's in addition to his run natural running ability, something Keaton Slovis doesn't have, but Caleb Williams understanding was already advanced several notches more than Keaton Slovis's was. So yeah, there's a def definite difference in terms of how we perceive 
each of these players after their respective freshman seasons, Slovis in 2019, Caleb Williams in 2021. There's a definite gap between those two. I, I like what I saw from Caleb Williams. It looked, I mean, it's more fun than, than what you had uh, last year. You know, it's definitely more fun. My question is, how do you sort of like control that vehicle that, that, that's going to happen, right? Like, well, yeah. Well, Ian, let me just let me just jump in and say as we close down our show, I think the number one thing for Caleb Williams, let's let's not look too far ahead to like the whole season and like to Utah in October and Notre Dame in, in November. Those games will come along when they come along. But obviously, you know, the first challenges are going to be the Stanford game, uh, the, you know, the first conference game in week two, and then that very crucial road trip uh, to Corvallis in week four. Uh, you know, those are going to be like the foundational games. They're going to set the tone for the season. If USC can get through those two games with victories, then there's going to be a margin for error in the rest of Pac-12 slate. But if USC slips on the banana peel and loses one of those two games, then you have no margin for error in the conference the rest of the way. So let's just look at, at Caleb Williams in reference to those two games in the early portion of the season. The two biggest keys for Caleb Williams, they both kind of share the same route, but, but they're, they're different in their specific uh, uh, and you know, how, you, how you unpack stem. them. Different stem. Yeah, so, yeah, so it's basically don't try to be the hero. Like, obviously, you're, you're a superstar-level player. You have these transcendent abilities, but you don't have to do everything on one play. You know, if the play is not there, you know, throw the ball out of bounds. Don't try to, don't try to, don't try to fit the ball into a really tight window. You know, of course, unless it's fourth and 10, you have, you have to make a play. Or it's third and 15, you have to try something. But, Fine. Matt, but like, on, on, on second and five, first and 10, if a play's not there, don't try to don't try to make a, a really daring throw. And the other part is look after your body. Like I know Miller Moss uh, had a good spring game. He's, he's made some improvements, but we all know Caleb Williams needs to be on the field all the time for this team. You can't get hurt. You can't take big hits, run out of bounds. So explain Texas last year. You know, so, you know, explain Texas last year. Yeah. So make, Make the responsible decision. Uh, that's going to be the, really the big key for Caleb Williams in those first few games of the season uh, in September. Uh, because if he picks up a big injury or if he throws a couple intercept interceptions when he's trying to do too much, that's exactly how and why uh, this season will spin sideways for USC. But if, he, but if he consistently makes the responsible choice and he knows when to, you know, just fight Fight for the next play. And, you know, you're not going to win every play. Just move on to the next one. That's going to be the number one key for Caleb Williams in September. So, Ian, a great conversation about the spring game and about the NFL draft. Uh, a very busy week for USC football as we kind of begin to head into May and you know, kind of the offseason evergreen time uh, where we have some exciting special projects lined up. But, uh, Next week, we'll, we'll review the NFL draft and go over the team fits for the various USC prospects. Um, I think the general consensus is that five or six players are going to be actually drafted in, this, in the first seven rounds. You're going to get a couple of uh, 
undrafted free agents uh, as well, uh, similar to last year. Uh, Elijah Griffin was an un- undrafted free agent. So uh, we're going to write about those stories at Trojans Wire, the website. We're going to talk about those stories here on the next episode of the Trojans Wired podcast. So Ian, thank you very much. And for, for Ian and our team here, uh, we'll see you next week. And we remind you, you can listen to this show on Google, Spotify, Apple, and the other places where you listen to your podcast. We'll see you next week here on Trojans Wired.